the panel are international. We have Jenny Morton in Ototahi uh, Christchurch, uh, and we have Martin Bosley in our Wellington studio. Um, surprising amount of response regarding our moral conundrum, uh, whether or not to tell the owners about the goldfish. <laughs> have an environmentally calm funeral for the goldfish. Take some images so they, so they know it wasn't flushed down the toilet. Then when the people return, give them a card and, a, <laughs> and ask them, if you, if you can get a replacement fish. So some lovely responses. Thank you. And I can't wait to share with you our panel show and tell at 10 to 5 this afternoon. Some wonderful responses. But to this, Queenstown is still grappling with the cryptosporidium outbreak, causing diarrhea, gastrointestinal pain. Today, the Fata Order confirmed 65 cases, 12 probable and 8 that are under investigation. The source of the outbreak is as yet unconfirmed. The National Water Regulator is not ruling out legal action against Queenstown Lakes District Council for the lack of barriers to filter out Cryptosporidium. With us is Professor Michael Baker, the Director of Public Health Communications Centre and Otago University, known to many of us talking about COVID-19, but whose specialist interest has long included drinking water and water quality. Professor Baker, kia ora. Yeah, kia ora, Yes, one thing you mentioned I found interesting is that swimming pools used to often be a place for crypto outbreaks. Yeah, that's right. And it's one of the most seasonal infectious diseases. And there are always two big spikes. There was one in late summer in the cities and one in spring and autumn more in the countryside. And they each came from very different sources. The swimming pool one was from contaminated pools, obviously. And the one in rural areas, and this is applying to Queenstown, is likely to have come from, uh, you know, fecal contamination from uh, farm animals is the main source. Uh, so they're very distinct patterns. And actually the first, uh, well, my first introduction to outbreak investigation was actually in, in 1998, investigating a big outbreak in Lower Hutt. And it was, of course, it was linked to a swimming pool there. And actually it was very easy to end the outbreak. Mm. And I remember going in and just pulling the plug in the, the learner's pool, and all the water drained away, and that was the end of it. <laughs> that's, that's, that's incredible. It's a fairly simple. So on that then, what should have been in place or what might have been in place to mitigate the risks of something like crypto in this particular scenario? Well, this is much tougher, the problem they've got in Queenstown, as I think is fairly obvious now, and that is that all around New Zealand, we are very poor at protecting our, our catchments. The biggest problem is intensified agriculture and basically, you know, prodigious quantities of contaminated animal feces going onto the land. And, of course, the problem is it then gets washed into the waterways and some of that water, of course, is the major source of our drinking water. And generally, uh, and the other problem, of course, and the reason why we're seeing crypto in particular, cryptosporidiosis, is that it produces these little oocysts which are not destroyed by normal water treatment. So they go through coarse filters um, and uh, they're not um, wiped out by chlorination. Oh. So that's a problem. And so we've got quite a large number of New Zealanders now exposed to this particular risk. Quite a significant issue. Gosh, with us, Michael Baker. Stay there, uh, Michael. We've got a panel with us. Mm, Jenny Morton. I've got 
two questions. The first is, I presume you're only referring to public swimming pools, not my swimming pool. Um, and Because <laughs> I started to get worried for a minute there. But secondly, what's intriguing me is that it's been fairly clear for quite a few weeks now about boiling your drinking water in Queenstown and being very careful around drinking the water. Does it suggest, well, does boiling the water have the desired effect? And, and why do you think the number continues to grow? Because um, presumably some of those earlier cases have now recovered, but the number seems to be continuing to grow. Yeah, well, there are a number of things. I mean, it's a good question. There are a number of things going on there. One is it has quite a long incubation period, you know, up to a couple of weeks. Oh, okay. And also you may still have some contaminated water that's sitting around in, in ice and all sorts of other places that people are not thinking about. Um, but certainly boiling the water is very effective, you know, bring it to a boil for a minute. But, you know, not everyone will be doing that. That's one of the other problems. And the other difficulty is that it's still transmitted quite easily in households. So uh, you can get a child, say, with diarrhea or even someone who doesn't really have many obvious symptoms can still pass it on. And so this is why the health authorities are talking a lot about good hand washing and so on. So many of these cases now are secondary cases. And when they're investigated, they're they're found in some cases to be in contact with someone in their household who's had diarrhoea. So just just on that um, that that um, that back to that really good hand washing etiquette, Professor Baker is is quite key here. Uh, it is always important, and uh, particularly you know obviously after you've been to the bathroom or after you say mm. touched an animal, or particularly if there's someone with with diarrhoea in the household. But the other precaution is that you've got to really wait two weeks before you go to use a pool after diarrhoea. So that's another um, quite a long period that people perhaps don't, aren't always aware of. And the other thing that has come out quite a bit is these little oocysts are very tough little buggers. You know, you've got to try very hard to uh, destroy them. And uh, uh, alcohol hand wash doesn't work on them. You've got to use plain old soap and water or something similar. Gosh, yeah, Martin. Mm, interesting. Mm, fascinating. Um, Killer Professor Baker, um, you, you say that um, you, you think it looks like there's a, a sort of an animal fecal source of this. But what I was um, wondering was also what are the chances? It seems to be quite localised down towards the Queensland CBD area. I mean, what are the, you know, the chances of it actually coming from you know, another source than that, and I hate to say a restaurant, but I'll say it, you know, like, a, like, a, like another source like that where, you know, it might be a staff member who, um, who has had all the symptoms that you just talked about who hasn't engaged in careful hand washing and has sort of started something like this. Is that a possibility here? Yeah, it is possible, uh, and there have been outbreaks from that source. But generally that would have um, stopped sooner and involved fewer cases uh, in general. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, that's the trouble with enteric infections, these gut infections, uh, they've got multiple sources. And we, we always think about the big five being infected animals, infected people, contaminated surfaces, contaminated food um, and uh, drink. So all of those are possible. And some of them may be stored for periods, so we might see quite a long tail. Uh, but this does look like a contaminated water source, drinking water source, just from the, the board characteristics. That one of the one of the sequences is it could be um, a poorly performing sewage system somewhere around the lake. I don't know. Uh, I mean, all of the houses there should be on a central sewage system, but there might be some 
you know, as they say, these legacy septic tanks or, or funny old connections, and that might have leaked some sewage into the lake, mm. and that could cause quite a, a, a an outbreak of this type. So it may not be coming from animals. We, we don't know, really. I think right. the data will tell us because the the species of um, cryptosporidium, there's two different types. One comes from humans and one from animals, and that could give an important clue as to where it's come from. Certainly interesting, Professor Baker. Just finally, uh, back here we are back again. Uh, mm. We've had you on many years back uh, uh, about, um, you know, the... The, the issue of good quality drinking water seen as crucial uh, to our public health um, is nothing to take granted, even in a country like New Zealand, Michael. Yeah, well, this is why there's been so much talk about upgrading our water system. And you remember that after the uh, Havelock North um, Campylobacter outbreak, which mm. was actually the largest ever seen in the world, that has resulted in, uh, you know, huge reforms of the um, water system. And, um, you know, we've got three waters. And I'm still amazed that this is causing so much controversy because oh. who doesn't want clean drinking water, oh, no, good sewage disposal and good management of stormwater? And I think the, the term three waters, I think, is pretty apt. It's just a convenient way of saying we want all our water to be sorted out. And I cannot believe that this has become a strange um, almost a meme that is attracting a lot of negative attention because it just seems like an absolute so core rare. to modern civilization. So what's not yeah. to like? Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Michael. Good to have you on, Professor Baker. Kia ora. Thank you. That's uh, Professor Michael Baker there, um, who uh, whose specialist interests include drinking water and water quality from the uh, University of Otago. Forcing away from five, the panel are in Z National. Well, we all know the acronym WFH, <laughs> one that we might not know, have known universally before the pandemic. Well, here's another term, hybrid working. Not just from home, hybrid is more flexible. According to a new survey, Kiwis know hybrid working maybe better than any other country. 69% of New Zealanders are hybrid workers compared to 53% in Australia and a global average of just 37%. With us is flexible working specialist or flexpert Gillian Brooks. Kia ora Gillian. Kia ora, thank you. Well I canvassed some people around this and they said that actually a couple of days at home is now not just important but quite vital to their work health. Why do you think we're so high compared to other countries with adapting to hybrid ways of working? Yeah, it's, it's so fascinating, isn't it? I mean, the, the stats from the Logitech um, survey are really quite high and the, there have been lots of other surveys done and, and we're consistently coming up really high globally in our stats. I've been having a think, obviously, over the last few years about why that might be, why our uptake so high. And I think a lot of it is probably because of our COVID experience was so different to so much of the rest of the world that we got to experiment with new ways of working when the rest of the world was still in lockdown. And so I think what we've done is we've adopted these new ways of working faster than everybody else. And we've been experimenting for longer. 
Uh, Jenny, uh, the stats are quite interesting, quite impressive. Nearly 70% of Kiwis are hybrid workers. Where they can, I might add, and not everyone can, but compared to the global average, Jenny Morton, of just 37%. Yeah, I find this really interesting, and I, I find it really interesting, um, uh, Gillian, that you said that we've adopted to it earlier than others. Maybe we're just slow to return to the more normal ways of working. <laughs> I, um, I, you know, New Zealand is not the most productive nation on earth. Um, and mm. I think it might buy into our more laissez-faire view of our workplace. I personally am not a big fan of working from home. Um, I think people work in teams and you need to be with your teammates most of the time to work effectively as a team. Now, I know that I'm going to get yelled at from the audience oh, for this. But, they're coming but, in now. Yeah, they're coming in I now, just, Jenny. I'm I right just here. think what what is we what is wrong, you know, it's particularly for a lot of New Zealanders, and I'll put Auckland to one side for a minute, but a lot of New Zealanders, it's not hard to get to work. It's not hard to park your car or walk in or catch a bus or whatever. It's not hard to get to work and go and sit in a workplace for eight hours a day and connect with your workmates and do your job. Gillian. Why do we need to work from home? Yeah, yeah. It's a great question, Jenny. I think you're really right. And like One of the things I think is that if we need to get better at what work is best done from where. What we can also see in the stats for New Zealand is that we're one of the lowest rates of permanent remote work. Most people don't want it and it's almost it's actually on the decline. So you're you're right, most people do want to connect in person, they see the value of it. What we need to get better at, though, I think, is being more deliberate about the work we do mm. from home so we can crack on and get that kind of productivity gain. And then when we're back in the office, we've made some shared decisions together so that we turn up with the right people at the right time and do the right collaboration. And this is a lot of the work I do. OK, with, so with let's put it out to the country. Let's put it out to the country. Jenny Borden says, get back to work, you chip-eating slackers. <laughs> And start working. You're lazy. You're a bunch of lazy. I'm just. I'm paraphrasing you. You said said exactly that. No, Uh, I just said I I don't see what. (laughs) Stay there, Gillian Martin. Jeez, I'm feeling picked on. (laughs) Martin. Um, I maintain an office in uh, in Wellington, uh, but I work from home probably four days a week. Uh, and uh, and I made to for the people who do work for me, they go in, but they only go in one, uh, three days a week themselves. Uh, Mondays and Fridays they work from home. I've seen we have no loss in productivity. Um, we talk regularly on the phone throughout, and it's worked really, really well for us. Uh, it you know it's it's been fantastic. Um, and I don't have a pro- I don't have a problem with it. I think, uh, and most of the people I speak to seem to would agree with that as well. I think they just say we can. In fact, some would say they get more done when they're working at home and they are Do more you, productive. Didn't you hear what Jenny said? Yeah, I did. Get I did. Back I'm, to but, work, I'm not a, but, I, but I'm not. A, but I'm not. I'm back to work. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's um, it's. I mean, Jenny lives in Christchurch, where they're all five minutes from the, from their work anyway. You know, yeah, good front, point. From the, from the front door. All right, I mean, final thoughts, Gillian. Don't have that luxury. Yeah, I think I think really what we need to do is is get better set up from home and better set up from from work. I think that's what was in the survey from Logitech. You can kind of see that people need to be able to be more productive from wherever they're working. Um, people need to do the right work from the right places and make better joint decisions with their colleagues. To the point about productivity, I think the big problem there isn't laziness. It's our long hours work culture that needs a challenge here.
Lovely to have you on, Gillian. Needless to say, a bit of feedback on this, but for now, <laughs> a flexible working specialist, Gillian <laughs> Brooks. What I found interesting about this, Wallace, was that on the survey results, 51% of women work from a cafe as opposed to 23% of men. Just saying. Mm. Yes. I now, don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> no, I just thought I'd Jenny, just uh, throw that out Jenny uh, respond to that one there. Um, and speaking of feedback, I'm just loving your responses about the goldfish. Um, someone says, FFS, it's election time, and all you want to talk about is goldfish. Um, well, you know, we can Well, we don't want to talk about the election all the time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you, tu- you, you tune in late, that's what you get. You get, you get goldfish. <laughs> yeah, should have been um, on earlier. Yeah. We can, yeah, exactly. We can think about, we can talk about two things at one time, can't we? I have had a horse die whilst house-sitting. I let a parrot escape on another's house-sit, and we had pet insects die after feeding them at a day at a, at a two-day stay at an Airbnb, pet I say insects. tell the truth. If the pet owners don't appreciate your honesty, it's not your problem. Hmm. Someone says... They say insects die. Yeah, insects, yeah. pet insects. Yeah, there could be a spider. Anyway, uh, yeah. someone says chip-eating, pyjama-wearing slackers. Uh, finally, <laughs> on Oops. the panel... The return of a very occasional feature. I call it the panel show and tell. It's the greatest show and tell on, uh, on radio. Yep, thank you, thank you. And it's after that wonderful, you know, how you can recall your show and tell. You're very proud of taking something like a feather to school. <laughs> what do you have hidden in tissue at the back of your cupboard? What do you have? Let's tell the country about it or with us and have a listen to this one. We've got two for you. Liza's first up. Kia ora, Liza. Kia ora. What do you have for the country today? Well, Wallace, you went to school at Nelson College, yes. and so did my father. Oh, yes. And in 1927, he joined the Royal Navy. In 1939, he was the gunnery officer on the Achilles oh, at gosh. the Battle of the River Plate, where he was wounded in the gun turret that he was um, driving the firing of the shells at Graff's Bay from. Um, wow. Later, his his career led him to be an admiral in the Royal Navy. And at some point, they were diving and retrieving things from the sunken grass bay. And because he had had quite a big part in the the battle, he was presented with a portion of the prism from the gunnery tower in the grass bay that had actually been firing at him. This is extraordinary, Liza. This is really living history, part of the prism from... And do you have that at your house today? I do. I have it right in front of me now. It's hand-sized. It looks like a wonderful cut crystal. They mounted it on a mirror, and it has a small silver plaque, which simply simply says, um, prism from wreck of grass bay, Defeated at Battle of the River Plate, December 1939. Would you mind, uh, just oh, a favour... i quite emotional on that. I know. This is actually quite something, Liza. Yeah. Um, and I'd love to see an image. Do you think you could send me a picture of it? Yes, absolutely. Can I send it to the same number or... Um, my pro- my producer too. will get in touch with you, and with your permission, I'd love to share it with the panel of family across the country. Yeah, extraordinary. Yeah, no, 
No, that no, that would be fine. It it it, it has been up at the a special exhibition at the Naval Museum up Amazing. in Auckland. Very um, good. Liza, thank you for that. Uh, so uh, Liza's dad served on the HMS Achilles. That was part of the Battle of River Plate. With us now, we have Hamish. Kia ora, Hamish. Kia ora, how are you? Very well. What's your panel show and tell today? Well, I was just saying, I found this morning, so this is Muhammad Ali only came to New Zealand once. I managed to gather since this morning. And this is a celebrity dinner that he, it's assigned with, from Trillo's downtown, so it's signed by Muhammad Ali and his wife and a few other people. And it's a, so he only came here once and he met John Walker by the looks of it. Back in, in the, uh, met John Walker's the new window of record. Harris, Harold Smith was his promoter who also signed it. Because why did Ali come here? Because he met John Walker and then he met the New Zealand boxing team. Oh, Jenny, isn't this extraordinary stuff? That's, that's kind of cool. That really is. So I mean, random. Muhammad Ali came, yeah. to New yeah, came to New Zealand. Sorry, yeah. Hamish? Well, coming to New Zealand is quite... I mean, he wouldn't be going yeah. everywhere, and we're a long way from where he was, so I'm sure. But this is why things are interesting like this, more so than old China that you know I've dealt with for a long time that just has a, a name on it and it's yes. good quality. This is much more interesting, and it relates to New Zealand. No, no, absolutely. What I'm always saying. It's about New Zealand now, not about some far-off piece of English stuff that we don't even care about. Yeah, Martin? Well, I was saying, I mean, Amish, you, you had a hard act to follow with Liza in a prison from the Grave of Spay, but that's a good story. <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I mean, really, I mean, any, actually, anybody following Liza in that story is... You know, yeah. Well, yeah. I, did find, I tell you what, I did find the solid sterling silver ship made for the HMS New Zealand in Glasgow when I was at Dunbar Spay, which was completely silver, and I ended up going to the Navy in Devonport and saying, you should buy this because we were going to auction it. And they end up buying it. It's in the Navy now. Oh, great story. Oh, Hamish, you've done it again. Yeah. Thanks for Sorry. your story. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's extraordinary. So now that I is. I got a MIG jet fighter's compression suit two weeks ago in Dunedin. Hold that <laughs> thought. We'll be back in a month for you, Hamish. I want to hear about that MIG suit. <laughs> Hamish is a collector. Oh, uh, all right, Hamish we there. Need that and TV Liza. Back again. <laughs> and you can stop now about working from home and Jenny Morton's comments. You're not, and I was just teasing. You're not um, you're not chip eating pajama wearing slackers. Well, the pajama wearing bit might be true. Yeah, popcorn, that's true. popcorn that's eating. True. <laughs> Wonderful stuff, Jimmy Morton, Martin Bosley. Thanks for your time. Thanks no, again for producing the show. I'm Wallace Chapman. Back three forty-five tomorrow. Lisa Owen and Checkpoint next.